bring this down for short people. I too greet you this morning, and it is good to have the opportunity of worshiping together with you, the people and friends of Emmanuel Baptist Church. I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, and I will read in our hearing verses 15 through 21 as we continue our study in this wonderful epistle of Paul. May we hear God's word, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. May God be pleased to bless His Word and may His people say, Let's seek the Lord again in prayer. Holy Father, we are indeed grateful for this opportunity to gather once again with the saints of Emmanuel Baptist Church, His family, and the friends of the congregation. We're thankful for that wonderful grace that did indeed alarm us of our position, our course, and our status before You. And we're thankful for that grace that brought the promises, the invitations, the blessed overtures of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ meaningfully to our hearts and minds. We're thankful that we have meaning and purpose and that we have a hope, an anchor of our souls that reaches beyond this, um, this earth, this time, the struggles that we often find ourselves in, the disappointments, questions, doubts of life. And yet beyond all of that, we know that being born again by Your blessed Holy Spirit, granted the gift of faith in our Savior, the G- Jesus Christ, even though we die, we live. And we have the promise of the resurrection, of the coming again of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that You would feed Your sheep, that You would nurture them, that You would mature them, that You would encourage them in life's journey. And they would focus their attention, their faith, their all, more and more upon Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. The verses that I have read in your hearing from Ephesians 5 have been called a summary climax. They are transitional and their summary, uh, they're an exhortation that really brings to a close one section of Ephesians that begins. We could say 4.1, but specifically with the exhortations of 4.17 and following on through into chapter 6. But it's bringing to a close one section and transitioning into another section. It's summarizing for us a lot that we have already uh, looked at and considered in chapters 4 and 5. Um, 
the text will serve, and it does serve as a bridge between general exhortations that were made to every believer to the church. And that would be chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter uh, 5, verse 21. The multiple exhortations that we have in this section are made to everybody that are believers that are part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are transitioning to another section, chapter 5, verse 22, that will go down through at least 6, 9, but we could carry it on, I suppose, uh, beyond that, but, but specifically and primarily, I think, through 6, 9, which are exhortations to subgroups within the church. And primarily that subgroup is the home. And in the home, the subgroups under that are the husband and wife, the parent and children, the slave and master. So we're moving, Paul is moving us from general exhortations to specific exhortations as we reach this part of Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this text contains probably one of the best known uh, commandments, exhortations, imperatives in all of the New Testament, and that is, be filled with the Spirit. John MacArthur writes of this particular command, if we do not obey this command, we cannot obey any other simply because we cannot do any of God's will apart from God's Spirit. Outside of the command for unbelievers to trust in Christ for salvation, there is no more practical and necessary command in Scripture than the one for believers to be filled with the Spirit. What MacArthur is saying is this is basic. There is no Christian life, there is no Christian, Christian living if we are not uh, obedient to this command. Primary command is that we need to be saved, we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be obedient to Him. And this command also is very primary. Be filled with the Spirit. Now having said that about it, our focus today is not really on that verse. Our focus today are on these other imperatives leading us to that command. I want to focus on verses 15, 16, and 17. So let's read those again. Look carefully, look carefully then. The then is tying us back to what has been said in this chapter up to now. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we'll leave off the reading there. And that's our focus for this morning. The Apostle Paul, as is obvious from his writings, <clears throat> believed and taught that Christianity is not some mere philosophy, but rather it is a life to be lived. It's not merely principles or doctrines. It's not merely what we'd say orthopraxy, excuse me, orthodoxy, but it is also orthopraxy. It is the living out of those truths and those doctrines. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In writing that, he is distinguishing between what we might call word gifts. Those gifts and offices that are primarily charged with uh, declaring, explaining, teaching, uh, the proclamation of the Word of God. Now these various gifts differ uh, in their scope, they differ in their nature, they differ in their focus. And I think it's worth noting, and this is the reason I bring this up, and it's worth noting that the specific focus of the shepherd teacher, the poimain, is the word is used there, is feeding, guiding, and tending the sheep, the people of God, those that are gathered 
into the fold his church. This is the primary work of the shepherd teacher. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, he exhorts uh, the shepherds to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, a professor of theology is a very important gift. It's very important in the Christian world, in the church. But a professor of theology may be content with carefully defining accurately some great doctrine and truth of painful exposition to reach that conclusion. But the pastor teacher has not only that in mind, but he has a different focus and that he desires more. In addition to that, he, he desires exact, more than exact definitions. He wants to see the people of God nurtured by that, led by that. An evangelist may visit a city and preach some stirring sermons and he may see numerous conversions and witness numerous uh, baptisms. But the pastor teacher has a different focus and desire than that. Yes, it is true that the pastor teacher should be a theologian. They should be very much concerned with sound theology. But they desire to, to preach, teach, not just stirring sermons or not just correct sermons, but sermons that feed and nurture you. Now, there is an impact from this. And the whole impact is how then do we as a church approach worship? Is it primarily an evangelist, evangelistic meeting? Are we a tent meeting and is our primary focus just to get sinners saved? No. Our primary focus is as believers gather is to nurture them, to lead them, and feed them. And thus the worship service itself is given to that. And we'll, I'm kind of given a, a prelude, I suppose, to verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so forth. But this, but this is the great desire. So we're concerned with application because we want to see maturity. And if you go back to Ephesians 4, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, that you be matured in the faith. Now Paul was, a, was an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was a prophet. He was a theologian. He was a writer. He was a missionary. He was a church planter. And I think most of all, he was a loving, caring pastor. And nowhere is that more clear than in the book of Ephesians. Now we've talked about, and you'll recall the general division in Ephesians. We've talked about imperatives or indicatives and imperatives. Just to refresh our mind, an indicative is a statement of fact. Timothy is sleepy. An imperative is a command. Timothy, go to sleep. So we have a statement of fact, and then based on that statement of fact, we have a command given that summarizes, that addresses that statement of fact, that truth. Now in Ephesians, we have the indicative, the facts in chapters 1 through 3. We have imperatives, of course, but primarily we have indicatives. We have statements of fact. Fact that God has a great and ultimate purpose of salvation. And this is expressed in the fact that God has chosen, He has predestined, but we also see it in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth in Christ. This is a fact. This is God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. Fact. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, 
according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Did I say in Christ alone? And in Christ alone. I was trying to get all the solos in there. This is a fact. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. I'm not a recipient of grace because of who I am or what I've done. Faith is not something I'm just naturally born with, but it too is a gift of God. I am saved by grace through faith. And this is not my own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Solo Dea Gloria. It's to the glory of God alone. This is a fact. He states it as a fact. There is a fact that salvation is already, and yet it is to come. It's called the already but not yet sometime principle. And what is being addressed in the already but not yet principle, it holds that the kingdom is already now, it's already established, and that believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God. How be it? That kingdom will not reach full expression of glory, nor will I reach full expression of glory, until Christ comes again and all the enemies of Christ are put under His feet. We have this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Here's the already. God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are saved, you have been raised up by God, seated with God in the heavenly places. This is a fact. The not yet is verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I am already in Christ. I am already raised to heavenly places with God. And yet, the fullness of that is yet to be realized in, in, the, in the eternity as God continues to bless and show us immeasurable blessings in Christ. It's already, it's not yet. So we have facts. We have indicatives, statements of fact. Then we have imperatives. Based on that, based on who God is and the plan of God, the fact that salvation is by grace, the fact that salvation is already and yet it's not fully realized, but it's going to be fully realized one day in Christ we have commands. And the thesis is walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 1. These are facts. Now based on those facts, you walk worthy. And then we have a series of imperatives that address the entire church body in chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 14. And then again, we have a specific set of imperatives that, that address specific groups within that church. And I've already pointed that out. Uh, uh, husbands, wives, parents, children, uh, slaves, and, and, and uh, masters. So our, our text in chapter 5, verse 15 and following is continuing in the first part, it's continuing the contrast that Paul has used in making these various commands, giving these imperatives. And that, that pattern is, don't do this, but do this. That's been the contrast that he's been using. Now, notice verse number 15. And I think this will be, in this section, this is our first imperative that he gives us in this, this uh, transitional uh, phrase here. But he says, look carefully then how you walk. There's the positive, and he's still using the formula. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now, you'll notice that um, he's going to change that formula. He's transitioning. So when you get down to verse 19, there is no more, not this, but that. In 18, there is not this, but that. And that's be filled with the Spirit. And then flowing from that, it's not no more, not this, but that. But the imperatives are positive. And you don't see the not this, but that 
in verses 22, chapter 5, right on through the rest of the chapter. That's ended. That's closing. That's why I'm saying this is transitionary and it's a summary statement that we have here. It's very important in this book. Now, the, this, this topic sentence of this section, look carefully then how you walk, is going to be worked out by three antitheses. Verse 15, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, not foolish, but understanding what God's will is. And verse 18, not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing a literary change here and a shift in what's happening. Now, let's look, let's consider our, our text closer. That's just trying to get you to kind of wet our feet. Let's, um, let's get into it a little closer, see if we can unpack some truths from it. The first imperative, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Look carefully then how you walk. This is the last use of that very important verb that Paul has been repeatedly using, and that is the verb walk. He won't use it again. This is it. It's the last one. That tells me something. I ought to perk up when I see that and I realize, oh, he's, he's shifting here. Now, Paul has repeatedly used that verb walk. He's used it in chapter 4, verse 1, verse 17, chapter 5, verse 2, and verse 15. And, and what he means by that walk is to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. But now, this is our last use of it. And he's pressing upon us the importance to the entire, everybody in the church, it's corporate in its address. Everybody, it's the church, but it has individual applications. All of us should walk worthy. Now, I want you to notice the, ver the adverb here carefully. Look carefully. You know that an adverb modifies a verb. What verb is this adverb modifying? Is it modifying walk? That the emphasis has been on continually? No. It's, it's emphasizing look. Look carefully. We could interpret the passage carefully watch how careful you live. Curtis Vaughn writes that it suggests looking all around giving attention to all circumstances and consequences as one might do when passing through a very dangerous place. Carefully. I don't ride much anymore, but used to ride some. Damien and I have ridden together on our bikes, but when I would start out on a bike trip somewhere, my wife would always say to me, be careful, remember I love you, and I would say, I love you too, I'll do the best I can. And not that it's any consolation, but I would say, and if you hear that something's happened, you can almost bet it wasn't my fault. Because I ride carefully. And something happens because somebody pulled out in front of me and I couldn't avoid them or they ran over me or something of that effect. Because when you ride a motorcycle, you best keep your head on a swivel. You're searching traffic. You ever thought? You ever think about going by a large 18-wheeler on the highway? When you're on a bike, you do. And especially when you ride up beside them and you're, you're riding along and you go, I'm not going to stay here because if one of those tires blown out, I'm gone. Or if he throws something out, I'm gone. I, I best get past him. So sometimes we're not riding fast because we're crazy. We're riding fast to get out of crazy, uh, to get away from it. <laughs> yes, we are. Well... I could say I'm carefully watching how careful I ride. So the question then is, how carefully are you watching? Not just walking, but watching. Now, verse 16 will connect for us verses 15 and 17. The therefore of verse 17 has taken us back to 15, but not merely to 15, I think, really back into the context of the chapter. But therefore, do not be foolish. It's definitely going back to uh, verse uh, 15 and 16. And it's 
Also tying us to the next part of don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Look carefully. And we also have in verses 15 and 16 an urgency that comes to bear. Look carefully. Why? You need to make the best use of time. Why? Time is a limited, precious commodity. Walk carefully. Look carefully. Excuse me, not walk. Look carefully. Then how you walk. Why? Because the days are evil. Look carefully. Carefully consider how you're looking and how you're walking because time is precious and we live in dangerous times. That's his two reasons he's given us. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, So teach me to number my days. Why? That I can be depressed? That I can be cast down because my days are numbered? No. Moses prayed, teach me to number my days so that I may apply my heart unto wisdom. A wise person realizes that his time and his opportunities are extremely limited and precious. And they're not stumbling along, nor are they just being carried about by every wind and doctrine. But there's a deliberation. I met yesterday and talked for a little while with a gentleman that played the bagpipes at Howard's funeral. And he told me, as we, we spent several minutes talking, he told me, he said that, I don't know, when he was 20 or 30, somewhere along that area, he laid out for himself he was going to do something different every decade. So for his fifth decade, he decided he would learn the bagpipes. And that he had never, he didn't play anything, he never played a musical instrument, couldn't read music, but his challenge he put before him with deliberation for the time that I'm 50, is I'm going to learn, fit that whole decade, I'm going to learn to play the bagpipes. Well, he did so, and he did a very good job with it. That's realizing, challenging oneself, being deliberate about what I'm doing. That's what he was doing. Look carefully then. Use your time wisely. Look carefully then, because the days are evil. That is, the days are filled with dangers and pitfalls. Now in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul refers to this age. And he also refers to the age to come. In chapter 2, verse 2, if you'll notice there, he refers to the course of this world. Those that uh, are not saved, those that are in their depraved state, they're following the course of this world. In chapter 6, verse 12, he refers to this present darkness. And in chapter 6, verse 13, he will refer to the evil day. Now, what's he talking about? All of those references, I think, are describing the same time. He's not talking about different times. What's he speaking about? Well, I understand what he's speaking about in describing is that time, that frame of time between the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His coming again. In between that time is this day, these days, this day, these days. It's that evil day, that evil time, that dangerous time that Paul is describing in Ephesians. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read that there is enmity and it's put there by God. There is enmity between Christ and His, uh, His people and Satan and His minions. Genesis 3.15 And I, God said, will put enmity between you 
and the woman in between her seat and your seat. In Revelation chapter 12, which I view kind of as a panoramic view of history, in Revelation 12, in verse 12, we read that woe is pronounced upon the earth and sea. Woe, sorrow is pronounced on earth and sea. Why? Because the devil, we're told, has come down and he has great wrath because his time is short. And then in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, we're told that the dragon, another word for Satan, is furious. Who's he furious with? And the writer John tells us who he's furious with. That he's furious with the woman and he makes war on the rest of her offspring. And if you don't know who that is, he explains it. He says that is those who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those that believe and profess Jesus Christ. Those that are keeping the commandments of God. That dragon, Satan, is furious with us. So the truth is, as a believer, as a Christian, you and actually your family, because as a believer it has influence in your family, you and your family and your church are in danger. We're a target. Paul is saying, carefully walk. Carefully Give consideration to how you walk in Ephesians chapter 5. Not just how you walk, but careful how you look and pay attention to these matters. Ephesians chapter 6 and 10, which we will hopefully get to, and those verses about the whole armor of God, the reality and nature of that battle that I'm describing is set forth. It's not physical, but it's spiritual. And it's not against some weak, uh, wireless being, but it's against a very wise, powerful being. William Gurnall has a great, huge volume on Ephesians, a Puritan, wrote like a Puritan, wrote about this spiritual war. He wrote this, that it's the cruelest war ever fought by men. It will be found but sport in child's play compared uh, to every other battle and every other war. This war. And then he goes on to say, what is the killing of bodies compared to the destroying of souls? This is the great battle. So we have the exhortation. Look carefully then how you walk. Now he's going to work that out and the first is with understanding. With understanding. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't walk as unwise, but walk as wise. William Hendrickson writes, The connective therefore in the light of the preceding context may be interpreted as meaning because the danger is so great, the wickedness so appalling, the opportunity so precious, and because constant watchfulness, earnest effort, and unwavering zeal are so necessary, do not be absurd. Are you walking in an absurd manner? Are you looking? Are you thinking about your walk and your life in an absurd manner? On the contrary, understand what is the will of the Lord let the will of your Lord as He has revealed it by means of His own word and example and by the mouth of His chosen messengers be your standard and guide. Now let's look at this for a moment. The will of the Lord. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, obviously Paul here is not addressing what is sometimes referred to as the secret or decreative will of God for no one knows the secret or the creative will of God until after it has been exercised. And by providence, we begin to understand it and by His Word. But we don't look into that will. We don't know that will of God. Nor do I think Paul here is addressing what some call 
God's perfect will. If you would flip over to Romans for a moment, chapter 12. And let's look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 for a moment. The Apostle writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, based on that passage, sometimes folks will talk about what they call the perfect will of God. And the fact that you as a believer are to live in the center of God's perfect will. Well, there's some truth to that, but there's also confusion and angst that that causes. And it comes through like this. I could stand here and I can say, now you should live in God's perfect will. Are you in the center of His will? And by that, people then begin to work out and go, well, that means that if I'm not married to the right person that God in His eternal decree decreed that I should be married to, then my life is lost. And, oh, by the way, and I've heard this, but this is not <laughs> myth, and oh, by the way, I just met my perfect mate. doesn't matter I've been married. Preacher, don't you think it's God's will I divorce him and marry this other person? And you look at him like, that's absurd. Have you lost your ever-living mind? No. But where did it come from? This idea that there's only this, this one person. If I can't find them, I'm lost. Or there's this one vocation and if I don't have that you know preacher I know I need to this this is this is it I know I've got to leave my family all week I know I've got to be gone on the Lord's day I know I know but this is it and you look at him go are you absurd that's where it cares people look back to Romans 12 Let's look, at, uh, let's look at verse 9. Now, in the verse 2, he, he tells us that, um, that we may know the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, what is good, acceptable, and perfect? The law of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. But look on down to verse 9. If you want to know the will of God in this context, look here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. You want to know the will of God? Here's part of the will of God. It's not mystic. We don't have to. We don't. We don't. We don't need to look at it like a horoscope. We're trying to, you know, discern it by the signs and the skies. It's expressed. And Paul says in Ephesians, "Now you need to understand the will of God." And he's been laying it out. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. And he's coming down to this summary exhortation. Now understand God's will. Don't be caught up in the, in the way of the Gentiles and, and think that it's, it's to be found by filling yourself with, with drink to the point that you pass out. Don't, be think, don't think that it's just abandoning yourself, your mind, your, your, your emotions, your mental state, and just following the, the, the wisp of the will. No. That's not it. But that's the way the Gentiles went. You're not that. That's not what God has given you. We have God's will for us in Scripture. The principles, but not always the details. Yes, 
Do not marry an unbeliever and be unequally yoked together. And whatever you do, whether you be a garbage collector or a professor or a rocket scientist, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our principle. So the Lord's will that Paul is speaking about is accessible to wise consideration and application of the Holy Scripture. Consider carefully. Look carefully. Think about how you're looking. Where you're looking. What you're listening to. Who you're listening to. Look carefully. Well, I want to pause there today. But I want to come to some observations and applications of what we've laid out in front of us thus far in the passage. Let's start with understanding the will of God that we were just thinking about. And I've already said these, but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's so important. Every believer wants to know God's will. And as a dear brother of mine used to say, you know, you want to know what God's will is? It's what is. If you're seeking, if you're seeking that hidden purpose, will of God, there it is. It's what is. But understand this knowledge that Paul is speaking about again is not some mystical experience. But it's rather the result of deliberate and constant consideration of God's Word. So look carefully. How carefully you're walking. Think about the opportunities that are presented to you here at Emmanuel Baptist Church to help us collectively grow because we individually are growing and we're not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine going back to Ephesians 4. There are times of study. In those times of study, we can learn about the will of God. There are times of prayer, corporate prayer, and that's times for expressing the will of God. There are times for fellowship, times to exercise the will of God and how we love and treat one another, speak to one another. There are times for worship, where we worship God according to His will, hear the Word of God, pray to God, there are times for outreach. And realize that all of these opportunities are there to nurture the sheep. That's why they're there. To nurture sheep. And then I want to look secondly at this. I know I've been on it over and over, but I just want to stay on it. Look carefully. Years ago, I preached a sermon entitled, Living According to What You Do Know. And I came from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, which reads, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are not in darkness, that that day should surprise you like a thief. The catalyst for that sermon was having said myself and having heard said many times, oh, if only I had known then what I know now, I would have done thus and so. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many times have you ever said, oh, if I'd only known then what I know now? My question, and that message, and my question I'm going to resurrect for this morning's purposes and message is, well, what if you live now according to what you know now? It's not, oh, if I had only known. But my question is, what if you live now according to what you know now? And then that begs the question, well, what do you know? What do you know? Well, I think that we know that we are destined for a rendezvous. An appointed time. 
that our days have their number and opportunities are precious and meaningful. We know that time is limited and the sand in the hourglass is running out. I know I'm not going to be here forever. I know that. You know that, don't you? Sometimes we, we, it's kind of one of those mind and heart things. I, yeah, I know it, but it's not really settled in. We know that we will give God an account. How am I living as a husband for my wife? Am I understanding God's will and carefully looking and considering? How am I living, even though my children are grown, as a, a, a father to my children? and a grandfather for my grandchildren. How am I living and doing as a brother in Christ to you? Or in an office as pastor, teacher? I know, and I think you know, the days are evil. Paul said you need to pay close attention to this because we live in evil days, evil times. I think you know that. I know that. In fact, sometimes it's like, can they get much worse, at least in our nation? And I know, and I hope that you know, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is crucial in this battle and to my spiritual well-being, to my family, and in fact, into the world itself. Because if there's any light in the world, guess who's it? And if there's any salt in this world, guess who's it? A lot of times we always say, they'll take care of it. And many years ago, like you, I started asking, who is they? But when we come back to this point, they is us. If there's any salt in this world, you're it. Believers. And if there's any light, you're it. Believers. You know that. Am I living that way? To what I know. We know that being a healthy, vibrant believer is important, not just to myself, but to my family, to those hats I wear. It's important in the church I belong to. It's important in this world. And sometimes we go, what difference can I make? Well, who knows? Who knows what difference God can use you to make? And I know that being that healthy, vibrant believer and a healthy, uh, vibrant church does not just happen. It's not just an evolutionary process by which all of a sudden one day I wake up and, oh, I'm a mature believer. And look at the church. Man, isn't it vibrant and glowing? No. It requires diligence and dedication, much prayer, much faith. And in case you're wondering, I'll, I'll, I will say this. Because whether you're saved or you're, you're not saved, this can still rise up and plague us. I know I cannot change yesterday. There are times when in my prayer, I, I wrongly sometimes I think when I, when I begin to think my way through it is pray, Lord, I, oh, I would I not have done thus or so, but I did. I did. I wish I could go back and change it and undo it, but I can't. But I do know this. Christ does and can. That the sins I commit, the failures I am and, and have committed, that in Christ, they're not only can be forgiven, but the Scripture will even use the language of they're, they're put away. They're cast away. They're 
we don't use this language lightly because you have to understand the context. God doesn't remember them anymore. It's not that God isn't omniscient, but it's just it's an expression of showing what a difference grace makes through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So when Paul writes to Corinthians, he says that some of you were this, and he starts naming terrible immoral sins, and he says, but you're washed, you're cleansed in the blood of Christ. Let me ask you this. I know I must close, but let me ask you this. Have you expressed your love to others? You know you should. Are you living according to what you know? Do you owe someone an apology? What are you waiting on? Have you forgotten God? Has your life become so busy and packed that you're going through the motions of living without God? Has your first love for Christ become cool or tepid? Are you being obedient? Are you living now according to what you do know now? I close with these words. Loving words, pastoral words to all of us from the Apostle Paul. Look carefully. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that You take Your Word and You do with it what no man can. That You make it that sword that is able to divide asunder our very being, joint from bone, Lord, that You would make the application not that we would leave feeling bad or beat up, but Lord, that we would be grateful that we have such a loving, gracious God. And Lord, that You have loved us not only in forgiveness, but You give us Your Word to teach us, to lead us, to nurture us, to direct us. Thank You for Your great love wherewith You have loved us. Bless your sheep, nurture them, mature them in your word. And if there are those present that do not know Christ, that their profession of Christ has been um, really an illusion of faith, Father, I would that you would raise them up and savingly draw them to yourself that You would speak to us all, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.